Well, it's a terrible business, too. It's a really terrible, especially at that time. Like, the biggest company, they hadn't gone public yet, so it was still a private business. And so the guy running, he could literally do whatever he wanted. And if he didn't like somebody's face, he could fire him. And that would be that. Well, Vince McMahon is a known dirtbag. I mean, yes. like, even even beyond the, the parameters of playing a heel in wrestling, it's just a... He's a terrible person. And it's, I, I guess, the ex-wife, is she, are they... Uh, Linda... Uh, I do believe they're still married. Uh, they, I think they've had varying arrangements <laughs> over the years, but I do believe they're still married. And, um, you know, she's a devout Republican and she was active in the uh, Trump administration. But the thing is with her, that's the that is the the only evidence we have of her being not great. Where his is like his rap sheet rolls all the way down the block. He's done a lot of awful stuff. Right, what is it with wrestlers and having um, arrangements? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a business that is not good for family. Uh, you know, you got guys and gals traveling together, uh, seeing each other more than they see their families in a close contact business. So, yeah, lots of stuff happens that, that makes that makes the financial arrangements of marriage probably end up being more important than the romance ones in those situations. I have a certain amount of empathy for wrestlers in that I assume that like all of them have CTE. A good many of them you would have to assume. I like, you know, <laughs> went back when, I mean, okay, so you, you're familiar with the Chris Benoit situation. Yeah, of course. I mean, the man's finishing move was a diving headbutt off the top rope. He would give himself a concussion every night for his entire career. Uh, his brain looked like mashed potatoes when he pulled out of his hair, you know, like and, and that was the beginning of people learning about what concussions can do or getting multiple concussions over and over again can do. And so luckily, the business did change some after that. So now they do actually have concussion protocols and they don't leave it in the wrestler's hands to say whether or not they've been concussed. So, it, you know, they, they are protective now, but also they're a publicly traded company now. So they have to be a lot more careful than they did before. You know, similar with football players. I mean, it's no wonder that so many of them get caught up in just awful, or just awful, awful people. I mean, I assume if you get paid to repeatedly smack your head against things, you're not going to, you're not going to come out the better for it. It doesn't seem like what we're designed for. You're a big wrestling guy, right? You, 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 you do a wrestling podcast. Uh, I used to, I don't do it so much anymore. When that tape of Hulk Hogan saying all that racist stuff came out at the time, WWE being a publicly traded company did the right thing by kind of disavowing him and declaring themselves completely distant from him taking them off television, taking them off their website and everything. I guess they thought the proper amount of years went by where they would make more money bringing him back for nostalgia. In fact, it's not even a question. What happened was they started doing shows in Saudi Arabia, which were already ethically questionable based on them not allowing women to compete and a host of other issues. And the Saudi government offers them so much money to do these shows that they literally ask for whoever they want to ask for to appear and so at that point it made more financial sense for them to bring hulk hogan back for this show than it did to disavow their allegiance to him going further and at that point i stopped watching that was going on three years ago now since i stopped watching wwe now there's i still enjoy independent wrestling but there's really only one other company that has a nationally televised show that you can watch uh, kind of easily so i'll watch that one but you know me not watching wwe means my fandom of wrestling overall has certainly gotten smaller what drew you to it in the first place well you know i started watching when i was a little kid at that time it's the spectacle it's these 
guys and, and gals literally seeming like superheroes to me. They seemed like not people. They seemed like giant muscled metahumans or something. And, you know, knowing what I know now, how the successful performers seem to take something out of their own personality and crank it up and, and how that would connect them to these like cultural archetypes in a lot of senses. There's just a lot for me to devour psychologically when I was a kid and I completely bought in. Uh, and then I got smart to the business around the time I got to college. But even that only got me deeper into it because then I found websites where they talked about all the backstage politics and who was getting hired and who was getting fired and who was getting pushed and who made Vince mad backstage. So there was this whole other level as a fan to go even deeper. So now I can appreciate not only the theater they're presenting, I can appreciate the political theater of, of the decisions that they are making as a company that are playing out in front of my eyes on the show. And so to me, it's just a fascinating, it's, it's a fascinating type of theater that has also unfolded in my mind and, and because of my research and my interest in it into like a fascinating business. Presently, how many podcasts are you doing? Is it just the one? Oh, um, there's the one that is coming, that is coming out week by week now. There's another I've started production on. Uh, and then, so those are the only two that I'm physically participating in, but then I have a network which is going to have about five shows in it by by the time fall rolls around. I mean, obviously you don't do anything half-assed, but like when you do something, you're like, if I'm going to launch a podcast, I might as well have my own network. Well, you know, I, I, this is this is probably, you know, the, the, the podcast that I have coming out week by week now is probably like the fourth or fifth podcast I've been on or co-hosted on uh, throughout my life. And so it's not like I came into it thinking, oh, I need to do something entrepreneurial with it. I think I'm just in a phase of life right now where I've been in and around the entertainment industry long enough where the way that I want to engage with it as much as possible is in like an ownership way because I've been in it in the trying to sell people on my ideas way. And that has been in many ways, soul crushing as it has been sometimes uh, rewarding. And so to me, like, I want to bypass the part where I have to do the song and dance in a pitch room. I really, I, that, that part, because I feel like a lot of the way that I come into creativity is from having a perspective that isn't, isn't usually present in that room. And so it's oftentimes me trying to explain the value of something to people who will never understand it because they're not. They're not interested in the things I'm interested in, but I know that there are people who are, who are because there's other people who grew up interested in the things I'm interested in. And so for me, it's about taking this machinery, in this case of podcasts, which everybody knows how to engage with at this point, um, and, and pointing that machinery towards like, in this case, yeah, I'm talking to DJ Prince Paul about his entire career because he's sold millions of albums that people care a lot about and would love to hear stories from the person who created him you know and like and then the other side of that too is where prince paul who's he's been in the music business for like 40 years now um because it hasn't been in a way that's been highly commercially successful for an extended period of time he's never really had a chance to tell his own story so to me like the value in both of those things is very clear if I'm going to walk into, you know, a giant podcast company at this point, they're huge conglomerates in many senses and try to explain this. Then what they tell me is that their ad people don't know what to do with it. And I'm just like, 
I'm about to be 40 and I don't have time for that part. The Prince Paul case is really interesting to me from the standpoint of, you know, when, when I first heard about it, I really appreciated it because obviously, you know, I do the show and I've done 400 plus episodes at this point and, you know, I occasionally have had the opportunity to have people back on, but usually, I mean, oftentimes if an interview goes really well, you get an hour into it and you're like, oh man, you know, I feel like we've just sort of started scratching the surface with this person. And it seems like you've set it up in such a way where you're essentially, obviously he's really fascinating and has this amazing career, but you're kind of interviewing the same guy every single week. It's really a kind of amazing, an opportunity that you have there to, to just go deeper and deeper and deeper with this person. Yeah. And guess where I stole it from? I, I feel like I should know the answer to this. No, you, there's no way you do. I, I just say that because I think, I think it'll be ironic based on how we started this conversation. But I stole it from a wrestling podcast. There's a guy, Conrad Thompson, who uh, at this point, he has this small empire of wrestling podcasts where he takes people who have been in the business for 30 years and he interviews them every week. You know, I think it, I think in one of the shows, he's up to a few hundred episodes with a guy. Uh, but that's that's reflective of how long that guy's been in the business where they can have a whole episode about one pay-per-view event. Or they can have a whole episode about one particular wrestler who we all know and love. But that person has unique experiences with. Um, and he and like I said, I think he's done this. He's doing it concurrently, I think, with three different wrestling personalities right now. And me hearing that and really enjoying those stories and really seeing how valuable that concept was as when I thought I could take it into into rap music. I haven't really interacted with Prince Paul much. Um, is he somebody who you feel like you could just have him on the mic and he he could tell his stories or does he need somebody there to kind of shepherd him through them? Um, well, we focus project by project because I think that's the best way to prep him to to have, you know, interesting tidbits to come to the table with, which he always does. But, you know, just. I think that's a, a a good way to organize the conversation versus saying, let's talk about 1991 with, you know, just some amorphous thing. So, I, you know, it's not so much that he needs it, but I do think that making it project by project just makes it easier to focus the conversation and for it to um, for us to have natural natural guidelines from episode to episode. So is this format kind of the guiding principle for future shows on the network for the, the like for as far as I see it? What had happened was is a franchise is going to have different uh, art, different artists on it like per season. But then when it comes to the rest of the shows on my network, most of them are music related, but they're not the same format. Um, it's, it's in many ways. It's well, in some ways, it's me seeing shows that are already happening that I think are great that I want to help shine a light to and help you know, sell ads on and make money together. Uh, and in other senses, it's people bringing me concepts uh, that I instantly see the value in because it's people exploring hip hop history or unsung rappers catalogs, like stuff that I find really interesting and, and stuff that I want to see put out into the world. So hip hop is the through line with all the shows so far, but I, I think that's about to get vague really quick. <laughs> what does what vague mean in this concept? That I think there are ways to approach things that could be seen as hip hop influenced, but aren't necessarily about hip hop. So, you know, that opens up the, the, the possibilities of things that can be done on the network. Yeah, I mean, obviously, hip hop is a pretty big lens at this point from the standpoint of it just kind of being culture being this mm -hmm. kind of like amorphous part of something that essentially touches on every single part of culture. Absolutely. Do you enjoy the business side of things? I enjoy systems. So I enjoy 
navigating business successfully when I feel like I have begun to understand how a system works. That pleases me greatly. And I think it's just something about the way my, my mind works. If if I don't if I don't understand how something works, it confuses and frustrates me if I have to engage with it. But I'm thinking about how I want to answer that question. I I I think I gotta say no. I think I gotta say no. It sounds like something that started as as an not necessarily a necessity, but in order to kind of continue being successful doing what you're doing at the level that you're at, something you had to engage with. But you know, um, obviously, it's something that you're engaging with both on the podcasting side of things and having your your own record label. There's plenty of other people out there, so uh, you know there, there must be something that you're getting out of it versus outsourcing all of these concepts to other people. Uh, just more money. I, like I mean, and and I'm and and you know, because if you look at the record labels at the at the level I was operating at and continue to operate at, which is not like household name level, like I'm successful indie performer. I talked about understanding systems a second ago. I developed a deep understanding for how business worked with labels that I was dealing with at at that scale, and with me having an understanding of how that business works it started to make less sense for me to share or to get like a small portion of the overall revenue. If I know how to put the services together and get the project product out into the marketplace and nine times out of 10, even with all those systems in place, the real sales, the real information delivery service to getting the word out is me communicate with my fans anyway. Like if I don't tweet about it, if I don't Instagram about it, whether or not the record label or the distributor is is cranking their machines as loud as they can, it's not gonna it's not gonna be a success. So uh, my thought was, well, let me test out my experience with these systems, put my money up front, and get a hundred percent of the revenue back. And so far, that's made a lot more sense for me. There's a difference between putting your own thing out. And putting your own podcast out and really and branching out and, and putting out other people's shows. It seems like there's something also something in it from you from the standpoint of being able to enable other creators. Well, yeah, I think, you know, part of part of this indie thing is paying it forward because when you're indie, you don't have a career unless a bigger artist who doesn't have to, but you know, for any reason, they reach out to you and say, Hey, do you want to open up on this tour? Do you want to get on this song? Those kind of things open up doors for you and really enable you to have a career um so there is that spirit for sure because that's how i mean I, and honestly like I, I i i my outlook for the health of indie rap specifically is 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 not positive uh i feel like it's dying and it's dying quickly and i feel like the only way that an artist who's not if if you're not gonna make mass market ready you know rap music and you're not like especially great at internet like especially great at like aesthetics um where you can kind of get attention that way i think it looks kind of bleak for for artists going forward and and so like i want to be in a space where i can be looking around and seeing like oh i could help this act happen now that hasn't been the case yet (laughs) i've put out i've put out a project uh, this year from a collaborator of mine and I was shocked at how hard it was to make it happen 
Um, I think that I was operating under when I I, I say all this, this the, the talk about systems. I, I think I learned the systems that work for my career. I haven't learned the systems that work for developing. When you talk about the the future of, of indie hip hop, do you get the sense that it's something that's specific to hip hop, or is it just that like any musical genre under a certain level of you know selling out a certain size of venue is going to have trouble going forward. Um, yeah, probably I think, I think that's accurate. What I, I guess what I don't know when it comes to other genres is how easily, I don't know about the upward mobility in other genres. As far as continuing to grow the product. Yeah. Like, I don't know if it's as hard, harder or easier in indie rock for a band to grow. What I would say is, is I think that, uh, I mean, I know that the ceiling is a lot higher on hip hop at this point. And there's really, there aren't a lot of hugely popular rock bands that have come out in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, obviously, again, getting back to that early idea, I mean, hip hop is just popular culture. So, so right. you know, and you, you can probably list off like dozens of hip hop artists who, you know, five, 10 years ago were indie and are now just the biggest stars in the world. Right. Yeah, I guess the ceiling, the ceiling is higher for rap. And I yeah, I guess like Atlantic is not running around trying to sign a bunch of rock bands. I don't know. I I I wonder why that is. <laughs> really, I really wonder. I wonder why that is. I wonder. I wonder is it that much harder to sell rock music than it is to sell rap music? It's just not popular culture, you know, the, the way it was before. I think a lot mm-hmm. of it it just kind of comes down to that. But you know, in, in terms of your own career, in terms of the music that you put out in the world, do you get a sense of your own ceiling as far as popular appeal goes? Yes. Um, intimately. So <laughs> I, I listen to a lot of rap music and not always because I enjoy it. Like homework. It, it, in a sense, it's like research. I understand that I'm, I, I, there's a couple things. One, my age, like I said, I'm about to be 40. Um, and the, the way to do it when you're 40 is to do a big reinvention. Uh, you can do the uh, Killer Mike into, into Run the Jewels. You could do the, um, I mean, he was younger, but the Zebla X into MF Doom, the Ishmael Butler into Shabazz Palaces. I don't have that in me because my path is different. Like p- part of me being successful in other mediums is about owning everything I do. Um, so I don't have the, I'm not really motivated to say open mic doesn't exist anymore. And now my name is, is uh crab walk or whatever. You know what I mean? Like I'm not all of them. Yeah. I, I probably not killer Mike. No, definitely not killer Mike. But in a lot of those instances, you're talking about people almost playing a character. Right. Uh, and, and it's, it's, and it's, it's what it's taken advantage of lessons learned in pop culture. Uh, it's taking advantage of like, if you've been in a business long enough, you know how strong it is to create mystery and have that mystery create a narrative and how that sucks people in. And suddenly you don't have to work as hard anymore to like to to bring attention to a song where like if if, if Ishmael Butler was still not Butterfly, he was something cherry wine. If he released, you know, a fourth cherry wine album and it sounded exactly like Shabazz Palaces, it wouldn't have gotten nearly the attention as like him coming with a new identity, a new persona with a whole new world built around it and not showing his face for a couple of years, you know, like it's it's really valuable uh, in terms of selling music 
to create those things. Maybe a Diggable Planets album in 2020 wouldn't have done so well. Right, exactly. That's certainly a case where rock music, as as we tend to think of it traditionally, and, and hip-hop differ, right, is, you know, the Rolling Stones are continue to release albums. All these all these sort of legacy rock bands are, but uh, for whatever reason, I mean, you know, you, you probably have a much better read on this than I do, but for, for whatever reason, hip-hop just doesn't seem to kind of age as well in popular culture. I, I think that's changing. Um, I think that's changing for the highest tiers. So, uh, you know, Jay-Z is being allowed to age, but he also invented aging in hip hop. Like he also like when he turned 40, he was like, hey, y'all, I'm 40. I'm dressing different. You should, too. And then a bunch of people listened. So I think he's gotten in front of it in a way that's really kind of opened the doors for a maturation in general. Um, I think it's harder to be older when you haven't been traditionally successful. Uh, well, I don't know. I go back and forth about it because I think about somebody like Busta Rhymes a lot too, who was at the top of the world, uh, but didn't maintain that same position in, in this one critical time period. And now it seems as if things have moved on from him when like in every, um, in every metric of rap, he's still one of the best ever. Like, and people like Slick Rick or people like Method Man, like these people are incredible. These people are capable of making, well, Slick Rick isn't capable of making every kind of music, but Buster Rhymes and Method Man are. Slick Rick is capable of reinvention, for sure. Absolutely. And, and Slick Rick's style that he's been using for at least the last 20 years is still just as viable and thrilling as anything else imaginable and, and that's not even just saying because i like him like he's got his his approach it almost by default stays ahead of the curve because he's always thinking about language and thinking about rhyming but it's you know jay-z like i said jay-z has aged and i think the way jay-z has aged that means drake gonna be able to age that means lil wayne's gonna be able to age that means rick ross is gonna be able to age um but like i said Busta, slick rick and method man i don't feel like they're allowed to age and still maintain their cultural relevance inside of hip hop. And I don't know who gets to do that and who doesn't. I was listening to a, an interview that you did and, and, you know, and it struck me in an interesting way that, you know, you were describing your earliest years as being, as kind of adhering to this like punchline style of, yeah. of hip hop music. Comedy played a big role, you know, just essentially like delivering jokes. It almost sounds like you had a stylistic change tied to your change in geography. You moved to Los Angeles and you kind of got deeper into that style. How much of that was a conscious effort for you to stay fresh and how much of it was just kind of being immersed in this new culture? Yeah, I think it was just adaptation because where I was born and bred, my aesthetic, my, my metric for what was good was based on a very particular thing. And then when I moved to L.A., that thing was no longer seen as as valuable, as potent. And I would feel that when I would do the thing that I would think would get the most reaction and it didn't. It kind of forced me to reevaluate what the metrics were out here. And so and the thing wasn't to completely abandon it, but the thing was to like open up my perspective to see what was what is also good about the way that they approach it. 
and to try to add that to my tool belt. How would you describe the, the Los Angeles style? It is very much about styles. It's about cadences. It's about the the meter of, of the bars versus the 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 content necessarily. Not that it's not about the content, but with them it's more about like the virtuosity, like the violin player who can play the sixteenth notes in the solo, like like that sort of that sort of ethic is what informs the craft of rapping in the in the Los Angeles underground, which is well I've always been part of undergrounds. So like it was me coming to a dojo with the style that I trained with seeing that 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 fighting style didn't really win me fights out here and wanting to figure out how to incorporate their style into mine. That opens you up in a really interesting way, right? I mean, it it makes you more malleable and, and, you know, maybe does give you the opportunity to not only grow as an artist, but perhaps to, you know, continue to age well. Absolutely. Uh, Because, right. Because we're we're talking about aging and aging as we said in hip hop, I think is a function of reinvention. And so I can already clearly see uh, what the next phase of my rap music output looks like. And it is the sum total of almost everything that I've learned about the craft and really exhibiting that. Um, I've had to make the music that I'm putting out soon to kind of get over like personal stuff and get through feelings. But like once those things are processed, I do see what the next step is for me artistically so in a sense that's going to be a little bit of a reinvention but not the grand reinvention of a of a rock marciano or um or or a a, another great example was um sean price you know who was was ruck from helter skelter and had a whole career and then completely reinvented himself and and brought his career new life that random max record is i think yeah. like easily easily one of my all-time <laughs> favorites i i don't i feel like that doesn't get enough credit but like that is yeah it was a weird time that was you know those yeah. 2010s albums that's it was a rough time like we were kind of in between in between modes of consumption that was like uh i think that was like the end of the downloading era before streaming really caught on and a lot of those records that came out in that time kind of are getting lost it's interesting that you kind of you you tend to frame things in terms of economics you know i mean because because you also when we were talking about wrestling before you were talking about uh the wwe ipoing and how that kind of had to change some of their politics do you think that that's just i mean is that your own kind of economics class consciousness or is that really a product of you kind of 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 you being an indie artist and having to you know walk that razor edge i do think that for most things in my life that have ever been mysterious following the money gave me some kind of answer. Um, and, and it could be now that I tend to just look at that and, and because I, I do think it gives me a sense of understanding of things when I, when something changes and I don't understand, <laughs> I laugh because I just thought of something unrelated, but I'm going to, I'm going to say this. I used to say that there was one thing that whenever a person was acting a way that I couldn't understand Later, I would always find out that it was cocaine. <laughs> but now when organizations or or um, companies do things I don't understand, it's usually because something happened economically that caused things to shift. Particularly with the music business, um, I think it's important to understand economics 
because I think you have to understand how much food is on the table to have a realistic sense of how much you can get off of it. And and now we're, you know, when I came into independent music, there wasn't a lot of food on the table, but people were still selling CDs at $10 a unit. And the thing about selling a product for $10 a unit is that that scales pretty well. Uh, Cause if you sell 2000 out of the trunk, well, that's 20 grand and that's pretty good. Um, if you sell 5,000, you know what I mean? Like you, you can make a living out of the trunk with streaming. You can't really make a living out of the trunk because you're, your your 2000 album equivalent streams it doesn't it's not a livable wage <laughs> uh it, like the, the streaming money is great if you if if you're selling in bulk it's fantastic because you don't have the manufacturing costs so it feels like you know there's a windfall there and, and I'm, the record companies are loving that but if if you're operating at a smaller scale it's really difficult to live off of streaming money. This is something that pragmatically that you already have to be focused on, you know, given your position as an artist in the world. But, but I suspect that it's really exacerbated by you also being the, the record label owner. And, and it, it seems to me like it would be hard not to let some of these economic concerns influence the art that I'm making. Well, you know, I, I think that there's something about rap music where your intent, I think, a lot of times really shines through. I think your intent really shines through rap music. I think, like, if you're trying to make something that's personal, that means something to you, it sounds a particular way. If you're trying to make something that makes money, it sounds a particular way. Um, I don't think I would do that well. And I think that everybody could tell if I tried to do that, that it, it wouldn't sound right. And then the other part of that is that it costs a lot of money to make the music that sells a lot of records. Those those producers do not work cheap. Um, you know, those video directors, those costume designers, they do not work cheap. So you in a way you have to kind of have a lot of capital to even start with to to do that effectively. So if I try to do it, I'm trying to do it at a discount. And so not only does it sound weird, it looks weird like everything about it is going to be off if I'm not doing what I'm genuinely um if I'm not making music because I genuinely feel like that's the kind of music that needs to be made. Obviously, there's an ongoing narrative about, and, and I, this is certainly true to some degree, that in, in a lot of ways, it, it's, you know, easier to make music than ever. Or it's easier to, to put music out there than ever. And then, you know, you hear, you hear like the Old Town Road story, right? I mean, this, you know, this thing that he, you know, he bought these beats and, and, you know, it's not, it's none of the kind of the machinations of, of at least initially kind of the, the major record label behind it. You know, do, do you think that that kind of gives a, a false sense of narrative to making it in the music business? I think, you know, that's one of my number one things just as a person, just as a human. Like I said, I need to understand systems. Part of the reason why is because I feel like so much of so much of the narrative of popular culture is fake. So much of it is like inventing stories to draw people in. That's the classic American narrative, right? The the bootstraps narrative. Yeah, and I don't know. Like I, I feel like a basic American problem is the function of basic American capitalism as it has gone forward. Is that it doesn't train its consumers to be very savvy of what it is that they're being told or being skeptical of it properly in terms it just 
from my opinion. And so, like, I see a lot of PR and media tricks happening that, that people end up becoming popular artists off of. And I don't I'm I'm not personally mad at those artists, but I'm to me every time something like that happens, it's like a failure of our system. Like it's a failure of our like like I don't I, I don't want us to live as a population that can be easily tricked because I think that that not only has ramifications in pop culture, I think it has ramifications in politics and and and, and disease management and, and everything else. If 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 we're not properly skeptical, if we're not asking questions if we're so eager to take everything at face value um i think ultimately it ends up doing us all a disservice yeah i i suspect that that's probably part of your interest in in podcasting as a medium i mean certainly it's mine that um that we're not here adhered adherent to uh you know other people's time scales that that mm. we we can put this thing out in the world and assuming we're doing it on our own network we can put it out there as as unfiltered as possible Right. Right. It's just straight, raw. Um, it's 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 free of <laughs> doctoring and trickeration, you know, and it's it's out there. And with music, like there there has to be a certain level of, of doctoring, right? I mean, if it's going through the, the production process, you might have this really th- this this raw emotion and certainly on, on this record you're you're channeling a lot of that, but um you know, it it, it still has to kind of go through all of these steps in order to make it out into the world. Absolutely. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's a couple of ways to, to approach that question. Um, and certainly on this album and, and most things that I try to do, I do try to do the best I can to make sure things sound good. And that means involving other people in the process uh, and making production choices and mixing choices and mastering choices that I'm not qualified to make. Um I think I think that's important, but then there's another approach where you do put it out raw, where you put it out with mistakes, where you put it out with levels all over the place, and I think there's a value to that too. Um, I just have not, I haven't made the project that I'm willing to really stand behind that way. Except, well, I, I make projects with with the rapper Serengeti, and we go by the name Kavanaugh, and we've put out a couple things that where I do get to indulge that side a little bit more because I'm doing the production on those but when it comes to like open mic eagles music products that i feel like i have to stand on in my legacy and my catalog like i feel a certain sense of obligation to try to shine those up as much as i can did you feel a certain sense of obligation on this record to not mask the issues that you're dealing with i mean you know divorce is right there in the Mm -hmm. title Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, know? it's not, it's not even like blood on the tracks or whatever, right? You're like, hey, here, here's what I'm giving you. I'm giving you this album that very specifically deals with this specific thing that I've been going through. Yeah, and that's a new thing for me. It's called anime trauma and divorce, and then you got trauma in the middle of that too. And that you know, divorce might be new, but trauma is trauma's old in my life. Trauma's goes back to to childhood. So that has been present in my work the entire way. I've just never really like talked about it or pointed at it or or put that forward so being vulnerable on that level and presenting struggles in in, in as obvious of a way as i am is very new for me but i feel like it it's necessary in a sense to actually use the medium in a therapeutic fashion because that's partly what it's there for 
if I'm Drake or if I'm Kendrick or whoever, and I have the I have the careers of an entire floor of people at a record label that's dependent on me doing X amount of units the first week or else they all lose their job. Like, I don't have that. So, like, I have to take advantage of the fact that I have a medium and I have an outlet and I have to use it to work through things. And I felt like because I'm definitely doing that on this project, it was important for me to put that forward. In the PR related to the album, it, it almost sounded as though, you know, I think that you were kind of talking to your shrink and he or she yeah, was like... That's, that literally happened, yeah. Very specifically said, oh, by the way, you have this tool. And yeah. so it had not occurred to you it that had, you could channel it through your music, which is kind of crazy, right? Because like this is. is this thing that you've been doing for decades. Yep. And I'd never thought to use it that way. I never... I always thought... Well, it's not that I always thought. I always trained my pen and my ideas at like the outward world. I am always aiming at society and trying to make a statement about society. For most of my records, I think I got like one or two that are more inward. But even then, it's like inward as a way to talk about the the human condition overall. I never used it directly to deal with my own stuff. Like, and I had to be reminded, like my therapist literally had to remind me that I have such a unique opportunity compared to most people she deals with who have nothing like, you know, like they're full of unprocessed emotions and there's no outlet. Like I literally have one and it did. And, and she just reminded me that it was there to be used. What's the value there? I mean, is it, is it, is it pure catharsis? Or are you able to work through this issue in your life in a way that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise? I think part of it is that like, Part of it is literally writing the things down, seeing them, saying them, like putting real words next to particular feelings. Like I think that in itself helps me because I'm, I'm not always the easiest when it comes to processing heavy feelings. I'm a compartmentalizer. So for me, the easy thing to do is to be going through it, not talking about it at all until like I burst and I explode from like, un, you know, unreleased emotions. So for me doing, you know, saying literally how I'm feeling on a song and, and having my voice filled with that feeling and listening to that and recording that and performing that and hearing that back like that in itself is helpful to me and then there's this other thing that happens where me putting those things out there makes it a little bit easier for me to exist out in the world because then people actually know i'm going through something so that i'm allowed to have a darkness to me that i've never felt I've never felt entitled or unable to have as a public figure. Um, I need some space to have that too. And by naming these feelings, it, it gives me space to actually be a person rather than a, a social construct of a person. You know, I suspect you're like me from the standpoint of, you know, and especially looking at your earlier career that you're probably somebody who processes things as jokes. <laughs> and I don't know if that's necessarily the, the healthiest way to do that. Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's a defense mechanism for me anyway. It, it is, it has been that. And, and there's even some jokes on this album where, where like there's some feelings that are still too big to process. And so I put them in a way that I find amusing just for me to help. Blackmore is definitely a jokey way of approaching that is a very the dark topic. darkest, funniest thing I've ever written in my life. It tickles me to death and it's so super sad and I love it. I listened to the uh, the XOXO talk you gave and, and, you know, it almost felt like you were putting that out there as kind of a, not necessarily a warning, but kind of a way of contextualizing what you do to future interviewers. Ha. Well, I mean, you know, you never know who's going to see something like that, but I just thought it was a, a, just having that platform to do that kind of talk. I thought that was a good 
way to explain something that I feel like I deal with all the time that I'm sure somebody else does. Like one of those things where you're just like, I'm sure somebody else deals with this as well. And I hadn't heard anybody talk about it. Um, and it's, and it's, you know, it is, it is a, a genuine problem. I don't know how to solve. Like, I don't know how to necessarily tap into my creative self when I'm in my explaining self. Like it's, it's really, really difficult. And especially with the cycle of how long it takes for music to come out. It's like, who knows what I was thinking on that day a year and a half ago when this idea came to me and I refined it over months and then the album was done and then I had to wait six months for vinyl to get pressed up for me to announce it. And like, you know, all, there's all of this stuff that gets in the way. The, the creative person is this real kind of insular, emotional and, 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 and deep and heavy thing sometimes. And, you know, if I'm having a conversation with you, I'm not bringing all of my my heaviness to the conversation. I'm not bringing like the darkness I deal with into the conversation. So it's, a lot of times it's, it's it's just hard to navigate building that bridge and trying to be honest about stuff when sometimes you feel like you have to leave a little bit of that behind. Sure, but you know, as somebody who has done so many interviews over the years, who who is a podcaster and is on the other side of things, do you think that that's made you a more empathetic or open interviewee? Um, yes, yes, I'm sure it has, but I'm not sure it's conscious. I'm I'm not sure it's conscious. I'm, I'm, when I'm interviewing people, I am so laser focused on like a particular kind of like energy space I'm trying to be in that like, I, I, I'm not often in that same space when I'm not interviewing somebody. So, um, it's hard for me to know exactly what I carry forward from that except that i really i really love doing it like i really really love doing it like it's one of my favorite things to do is kind of lock in and 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 get to a place with somebody you know now that you're in the interview cycle for this album specifically has your ability to answer those questions changed because this album is so personal and and there are so many things on here that are being drawn directly from your life yeah it's easier for sure um there's less mystery to myself for what I was thinking and feeling. And because sometimes like in some of these songs I listen to and I'm like, oh, I'm right there. I'm right. I like I can remember where I wrote this. Like I can like it, it's it's that palpable with with, with some of these. And, and that does make it a lot easier to discuss the context or the intent, you know, the feeling from which they came. You alluded to this before, but but you have this idea of what you look like down the road. Kind of a two-part question. Does this album feel like a step on the way along that road? And what does an open Mike Eagle project look like going forward? Uh, I think I think after this is about focusing on craft. I think that on this album, there's there's craft things I did that I think aren't the best, but they were what had to be done to get through these particular emotions. And I think that I, one would hope that the next time I'm locking in and working on music, that I'm not dealing with those same things. And I can I can really focus on craft because not only should I be past those feelings or at least have dealt with them in some substantial way. The feelings that you're processing on this record. Yeah. I think that economically it will benefit me as well to focus on craft. So you are thinking about that. Absolutely. But I think, I think, I think it's a natural meeting of those two forces because at the end of the day, like we were talking about, like I, you know, 
studied in these different rap circles around the country, uh, even if it's just two of them, I am craft oriented at the end of the day. And there's a certain sort of um, energy that gets infused into a project and gets experienced by a listener when it is about craft. I want to feel that as a creator and I want people to feel that from me. And I think um, I'm I'm excited when I get to that point to see how that opens things up. So when you discuss craft in this context, it's more, it's an aesthetic, it's, it's musical, it's cadence, and it's less focused on lyrics. Is that right? No, I don't think it's less focused on lyrics. I think it's less focused on, less focused on my personal business. It's more, it's more focused on, on painting a picture over a beat. And it could be infused with all sorts of feelings attitude altitude flourishes whatever but it's it's not about this is what i'm going through this is what i'm dealing with it's about like i'm trying to think of a of a, of a verb but i can't think of a verb um when it comes to what i'm talking about because it's not it's not about being the best it's not about being the best and i think that like that's the that's the way that I would have put it if you had asked me this at a different point in my life, if I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about right now. But it's not about that exactly. In terms of like, I'm the best MC. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it will, it, it may come off that way, but that's not what it's about. You know, in the same way that like MF Doom is the best rapper in the world to me. MF Doom isn't spending a ton of energy on every song trying to prove that to me or anybody else. He's just doing his thing, you know? And so to me, it's about doing my thing. So you're trying to be less of a perfectionist going forward? Um, well, no, I can't say that either. I think it's, 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 um, I think sometimes with craft, perfect isn't about precision. Uh, perfect is about energy. Sometimes perfect is about pronouncing something wrong the right way. You know what I mean? To like, to bring attention to, to, you know, like it, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of levers to play with in rap. That's one of the most fun things about it. There's a lot of levers you can play with. It's about serving a product. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And you feel like what you worked on in this record and that concept are kind of mutually exclusive to some degree? To some degree. Yeah. Because this was more about me than, than product. This is, this album is a product that I think is that I really believe in highly, but it's not about like, that's what it's been really hard to take singles from this thing. Cause it's not, it wasn't constructed that way. Um, it's constructed as an exploration of my feelings. So like any one of these out of context, it's hard to like, it's hard to know what sort of impact it would have. Uh, to me, this thing is meant to be sat down with for 40 minutes. So yes, in a sense, those two, those two th- ideas are, are mutually exclusive. Is it to some degree that it's just not really an experience that you want to do again? I mean, because you're dealing with these things in real life and then you spend all the time it made to write the record, spend all the time it made to, to produce a record, and now you're promoting the record and you kind of, to some degree, have to continue living in that headspace. Absolutely. A that's, that's a problem. And I knew it was going to be a problem. I, I don't think that's so much what I'm worried about with the next thing. No, I just think, I just, I'm thinking about it like a pendulum and I, and I, I want to, I want to feel that other side again, you know? And I, and I feel like if you look at like Griselda, right? Those are craft dudes, you know? Like, and I, I, 
to for me personally, not enough people in the world know how much craft means to me. And I feel like me exhibiting that and people experiencing that will be quite valuable for, for me. I think it, it would be exciting and valuable for me to make and put out things that like put the way that I treat craft in that sort of light. It's not about necessarily entering this new phase that's going to be the phase going forward. You're reserving the right to, you know, have a personal cathartic record in the future, but just making sure that you're serving kind of all of these different sides of yourself exactly. as an artist. A hundred percent that. A hundred percent that. Like, yeah, if I go through something, I do want to have this to still use for that. Um but I don't necessarily want to dwell on my feelings for like three or four albums in a row either. <laughs>